Welcome into the Pursuit of Manliness podcast, where we are vigorously equipping men to pursue biblical manliness. My name is Jarrett Samuels. I'm the host of the podcast. Men, as always, thank you for taking time, checking out today's show. If this is your first time coming across the Pursuit of Manliness, I want to let you know two things. One, make sure you visit thepursuitofmanliness.com. You can find this podcast episode, all the previous episodes. You can see what's available in the gear store, find out about our men's retreat, sign up for the email newsletter, just a lot, a lot of stuff there. So make sure you go there. I also want you to know that on Fridays, this podcast is an out in the garage podcast. You say you don't look like you're out in the garage. No, but that's where this whole thing originated. That's the name. We're walking through scripture, which is what we've done uh, ever since the the first days of, of the pursuit of manliness. But an out in the garage episode means it's sponsored by Dark Water Woodwork, darkwaterkc.com. Right now, Dark Water Woodwork is offering a out in the garage beard bundle. I don't know if you can see that on the YouTube. Uh, this is the beard balm. And I believe they come together and use the code Exodus 11. Exodus 11. I was talking to a lady, a wife, the other day who bought this bundle for her husband. And in her words, I'll paraphrase it uh, to protect her identity, was it smells better than the stuff that his parents got him. And so she approves. It's wife approved. So make sure you check out darkwaterkc.com. So we are walking through the Bible. We're in Exodus, Exodus chapter 11, and there's only 10 verses. This is strange. You think about some of the, th- the books we've, we've covered, Genesis. You figure out some of the chapters we've covered. We cover a lot of ground. And uh, 10 verses in this chapter, it's a unique chapter. In many ways, this is kind of a hinge chapter. There's certain portions of the Bible that are kind of like hinge chapters, hinge verses. What I mean is they kind of burst the door open for what is about to happen, that what happens never goes the other way ever again. This is a hinge chapter. So this is the final plague threatened. We've been walking through the plagues in Egypt. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Moses had to say, this is good news. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. Let's stop right there. Outside the burning bush, I don't know exactly how God is talking to Moses. I don't know how he's communicating with him. I don't know if he's within Pharaoh's court when this conversation is happening. I don't know if there's kind of a, I I don't understand how it's happening, but uh, clearly God is communicating with him. He says, I'm going to send one more plague upon Pharaoh. Now, it's, it's interesting to note this word plague carries a different weight than the other plague words. The, the, the words we've been talking about is magafaw. Okay. I may not even said that right. It's M-A-G-G-E-P-H-A-H. Okay. This one is N-E-G-A, which was first used in Genesis chapter 12, verse 17, when the Lord struck Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because Abram tried to pawn his wife off as his sister. And God said, nope, that, that ain't going to work. This plague is directly going to impact the firstborn. This this is a big deal here. But it wasn't just going to impact Pharaoh. It's going to impact all of the families of Egypt. This is very personal. This gives Israel, Egypt, Moses, Aaron, and Pharaoh a clear sign. God is the author of life. He says, and from there, he will let you. After this, he's going to let you go. God being full control of this situation says, when this is done, we're done. We're done with this this phase of this. This is over. 
in Exodus chapter 3, verse 20, we go back to that. God told Moses, so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. <clears throat> I wonder if Moses ever thought about that phrase. You know, you, you, you ever had an interview and your boss said something or the HR person said something and you think about it as you're doing the job like, I wonder if that's ever going to happen. I wonder if, I thought they said that was part of the culture. It's not. I wonder if Moses ever considered, God, where are you at with this? You said he's going to let us go. Not only is Pharaoh going to release Israel completely, he's going to be the one, at least in his mind, he's going to be driving them away. He thinks he did it. It reminds me of Psalms chapter 2 that talks about, you know, why the nations rage, the, you know, these leaders plot in vain. Leaders of our world have like no accountability. They think they're full control. Who's going to challenge them? God is sitting in heaven and <clears throat> say, holds them in derision and he laughs. God is in control here. He's in control there. Uh, it says completely. Pharaoh had said that he was not going to let all the Hebrews go. Said, verse 10, chapter 10, he says, you know, keep your kids here. Nope. Uh, you can go in chapter 10, verse 24, without your flocks. Nope. Uh, he can go, but you can't go very far. That was 828. Nope. Uh, this is going to be totality. This, this departure is without restriction or limitation. He said, get out of here. I don't want to see you again. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. Go back to Genesis chapter 15. I'll turn it. You don't have to unless you're, unless you're at a place where you can. If you're driving, please don't turn there. Exodus chapter 15, verse 12. And the sun was going down. This is God talking to Abraham. And a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring shall be will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs. They will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. That's where we're at right now. But I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. That's what God's telling them right here. Oh, it's going to happen. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. God said, oh, I'm in complete control of this. He says, have every man and woman ask their neighbor, they could uh, borrow some things. Do you have any sugar? No, it's a little more serious than that. Asking for silver and gold jewelry. Of, of course, this is not the idea that we're borrowing it, going to give it back, or whatever. This is the idea that that they're they're about to be plundered. As God talked about, uh, W.A. Criswell is a commentator, and he said, since the Egyptians had forced the Israelites to work through the years in bondage without compensation. God declared they should receive some fruit of their labor. Thus, they simply asked their taskmasters for things, and God opened their hearts of the Egyptians to their pleas. <laughs> Only God can do that. Some of you wouldn't answer the door if your neighbor came, let alone go, can I have some gold and silver? Yeah, you got it. What, honey, where do we keep Where do we keep all the gold and silver? Let's go get that for our neighbors. I mean, they, <clears throat> they were slaves. They were oppressed. They had nothing. They had nothing that would be useful for the journey that they were about to set on, set out on. We know that God takes them the long way because they're not ready for it. They, they couldn't fight. They didn't know how to worship. They didn't know how to be a nation. Verse 3, And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, this is fantastic. Moreover, like I can't believe I'm writing this. The man Moses was, can you imagine Moses 
writing this down. He's like, I'll take my time on this one. The man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and the sight of the people. I'll tell you what, Moses' approval rating is going the right way, isn't it? This was a guy that they said, man, I'm sick of this guy. Every time he shows up, things get worse around here. The Israelites didn't want nothing to do with them. They're going to complain more and more. But I'm telling you, in this moment, uh, Moses' approval rating going the right direction. Egyptians gladly given to the Israelites. This is kind of the calm before the storm. We talk about that hinge chapter, right? You can feel it starting to open up here. Israelites once favored and respected in Egypt, and over the course of 430 years, things have changed dramatically. But once again, they're starting to experience favor. God's delay is not a denial of his fulfillment of a promise. God said, in in the right time, in the right time. Verse 6, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. That's an eerie verse, isn't it? Not a not a dog shall growl against any of the people. No, nothing, not even a a growl. Nothing. There will be a clear distinction. This is a bit of poetic justice in this this word. It'd be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt. It's the same Hebrew word that was used in Exodus three verse seven, where it said that God had give he heed to their cry because of the taskmasters. God had heard uh, the oppression. He had come up to him. Exodus three nine. Behold, the cry of the sons of Israel had come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. So this tenth plague, we see the oppressors will be oppressed, and they will let out a great cry. In the, the, the phrase, in all of the land of Egypt, indicates this plague will impact the entire nation. This is not just a weeping, but a loud cry, one that would be of, of dire straits, as would be the case of the loss of the firstborn. One commentator said, Egyptian will call upon its gods for aid, but they will remain silent. Israel, the image of a one true living God. Israel cries out to their God. And what happens? He answers. He answers. Now, I I can imagine for an extended period of time, 100, 200, 300 years, I don't know, 400 years, I don't know. Maybe there was a cry coming out from the nation of Israel and the Egyptians perhaps mocked them. Where is your God? He doesn't care. But here, here he shows up. Part of their cry is going to be, and we haven't gotten into 12 yet. We'll get into that, the Passover. That's a big deal. That has quite a few more verses in it than uh, 10. Yeah, 51. Part of their cry was that their gods that they put all their hope in had evidently lost their powers. You talk about the power over life and death. That's what God's displaying here. This would demonstrate the futility of their idols, of their gods. When we put our trust in in idols of of money, success, power, influence, winning, 
perceptions, reputations, whatever. When we manufacture these idols, these on-the-go idols, what we'll find is they'll always come up empty. We'll, we will always be disappointed. They'll fail us at some point. The only trustworthy is, is, one is Jesus. And it sounds like such a Sunday school answer unless you know him, unless you know Scripture. Now, let me let me say this. We're about 12, 13 minutes into this thing here. I think it can be very easy to distance ourselves from a text like this and read it simply as history because it is historical. It is historical. I find it fascinating that archaeologists, which I am not one, archaeologists, when they go and they dig and they're uncovering and unearthing cities and, and finding um, census and finding you know, inscriptions and tombs and all these things, it always upholds Scripture. I say that because what we want to, to make sure what we want to make sure happens here is that we don't remove ourselves too far from Scripture, that it doesn't impact us. That we say, hmm, bummer, Egyptians. Bummer. Yay, Israel. Because when we read Scripture, if you're like me, I will oftentimes place myself in the position of what I would perceive as the declared winner. We're always able. We're never Cain, right? We're always David. We're never Saul. We like to be Peter. We're reckless. We're, you know, fierce. We're kind of a wild card. We're never Judas. We never want to be Judas, right? We always place ourselves in the position of the victor. So therefore, we think we should get the spoils. Careful here. The spiritual element to this event is very clear. All must die because of sin. Okay, I want to go to, uh, let's go to Romans real quick. Again, if you're driving, if you're driving, don't go to Romans, but I'm going to go there. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we're all going to die either in our sins and under the judgment of God personally, or we're going to die in the in the person the representation, if you will, of, of, of redemption, who is Jesus. You're either going to spend eternity apart from Jesus or with Jesus, okay? But we're all going to die. There comes a point where we're not going to take up space on this planet anymore. We don't know the amount of time. We don't know how long that's going to last. When we look at the book of Exodus, we see what happens, this great cry, this great weeping, this, this loss if you don't know, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen here. The death of the firstborn is, is going to happen. Every family, livestock, whatever. Only in Egypt. Well, in, in reality, we all die. Your dog's going to die. Your cat's going to die. We're all going to die at some point. And there is a weeping. There's a mourning. We will never reconcile death on this side of eternity. It, it's part of the fall. It's part of the consequences of the fall. The unsaved people. How do I know if I'm saved? I'm in Christ, okay? And we'll get in that in just a second. The unsaved are going to die in their sins. The saved die in the substitute for their sins, which is Jesus. He is the atoning sacrifice. You read the book of Leviticus, and you can see the amount of times they're making atonement for the sins. 
and what goes in. And, but even the priest had to make atonement for the sins. Why? Because he had sins. Jesus is the only one that was sinless. He is the perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins. He was the only one to be able to pass under the the, the flaming uh, swords that kept us uh, that separated us from from God's presence. That that ripped the curtain from top to bottom to make a right way that we can have a relationship with God. I say all that because there will be a response. There is saved and unsaved. That's what I believe based on Scripture. I don't know what you got. I don't know what you're working with here. We are either with Jesus forever or we are apart from him forever. I want to go over here to Revelation 19. Revelation 19 said, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty per peals of thunder crying out hallelujah for the lord our god the almighty reigns let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and the his bride has made herself ready it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen bright and pure the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints and the angel said to me write this blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb and he said to me these words these are the true words of of God. These are the true words of God. When we look at an Exodus 11, it's easy to remove ourselves from the text and say, bummer for the Egyptians, yay Israelites. But listen, this crying out, there will come a point when the opportunity to respond to Jesus is no more. That's it. God will say, that's it. No more, no further. Okay. And so we look at Jesus riding the colt and everyone, Hosanna, saying, be quiet. And Jesus said, nope, even the, even the stones will cry out. We see in Revelation kind of an, an, an image, if you will. Is that Phil Wickham, that, that song Breath of Heaven, I think it's called? I'm not a big music guy, but that song to me is one of the most unique things to consider. Because some of the image of heaven, not fun. It just, it just doesn't seem like a fun place, but that image is just incredible. Revelation 19, though, the rejoicing in heaven and the coming together, this marriage supper of the Lamb and, and the bride of Christ and all this coming together and, and, and all the things that are going to be happening here. And he said, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these words are the true words of God. Brother, these are the true words of God. Read it for yourself. Ask yourself. Am I in Christ? Am I in Christ? Ask yourself, where am I at with that? Where, where am I at with that? One of the verses that I've shared before, and I remember sharing this at like a Christmas Eve service, which not what you're thinking you're getting when you come to Christmas Eve, but Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The question is, not is not does you do you know Jesus? The question is, does Jesus know you? 
These words are true, and they are true for all eternity. We need to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus, you are my Lord, and you are my Savior. He's not your fire insurance plan. (laughs) Don't want to go there. No, you are my Lord and my Savior. You are now the boss of my life. I am going to live a life of restraint. I'm going to live a life of self-control. I'm going to live a life that is is, is pleasing to you, and I, I am going to try my best to help other people get there. Titus chapter 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaved to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice, envy, hated by others, hating one another. Mm, We're just like Egypt. But when the goodness of loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, John 1, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We are born again. The old is gone. The new has come. These words are true for all eternity. Put your faith and trust in Jesus. Make sure he knows you. He is more than sufficient to forgive you of all your sins, your past, your present, your future. Go into the waters of baptism. Be buried with Christ. Be raised to walk in a newness of life. Romans 6, 4. And then do that. You were once foolish. You were once disobedient. You were once led astray. But that's over. That ship has sailed. That's over. Walk in a new life. Make sure when we look at this text... Again, we're not the victors and we get the spoils. What we see is a, is a sovereign God who has no limit, who has no hindrance to his reach or what he can accomplish. And he'll use any means possible to make sure we get his attention. And there will be large cries going out. We want to make sure that we're on the right side of this thing. We want to make sure that we're right with Jesus. We want to make sure we put our trust in him, that our eternity is secured, And then be a conduit of the gospel. Be a disciple who makes disciples. Don't be a Christian who plops up in the high chair and waits for people to feed you, and then you just eat whatever they throw in front of you. Be a person who gets in the booth, get out this book, mark it up, highlight it. Mine's marked all over the place, all worn out. And be changed. We talk about being men of God, who are changed by the presence of God, who are in the Word of God. Let's do that, right? There's a couple more verses I want to get to here in Exodus 11, if I can find my way back there. Uh, but we are we are running out of time here, so we're going to continue that conversation to herd. Men, I appreciate you listening. I hope you consider those verses, and let's keep pursuing biblical manliness. Mm-hmm.